0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. The first Plantagenet king inherited a blood-soaked kingdom from the Normans and transformed it into an empire that stretched at its peak from Scotland to Jerusalem. In this epic history, Dan Jones vividly resurrects this fierce and seductive royal dynasty and its mythic world. We meet the captivating Eleanor of Aquitaine, twice queen and the most famous woman in Christendom, her son, Richard the Lionheart, who fought Saladin in the Third Crusade, and King John, a tyrant who was forced to sign Magna Carta, which formed the basis of our own Bill of Rights. This is the era of chivalry, Robin Hood, and the Knights Templar, the era of the Black Death, the Black Prince, the founding of Parliament, and the Hundred Years' War. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 352 of the podcast. Today is Sunday, March 20th, 2022, and that was the publisher's summary for Dan Jones' 2012 work, The Plantagenets, The Warrior Kings and Queens Who Made England, which I just finished up yesterday. I will say from the top, if you listen to the audiobook version narrated by Clive Schaefer, speed it up because he is not, not only not my favorite Narrator, but a number of other people remarked as well in their reviews on Audible that they just found him to be somewhat tedious. Uh, he was not their favorite either. Something about his delivery it just felt dry it didn't feel like it matched the style of the book nor the subject matter. It felt as though the subject of the book was more exciting than he gave it credit. Also, too, I think he was probably trying for a royal dignity type of tone, but it just came across as disinterested in a not-so-good way, in a a way that didn't match the style of the book itself. So, that aside, the story itself it can be a bit complicated if you've ever tried to make sense of the history of the kings and queens of England and Scotland you will quickly relate to my confusion sometimes it is hard to keep the richards and the henrys <laughs> straight it's it's hard to keep the richards and the Henrys straight, there are three Richards that come to mind, and I do believe we end off at eight Henry's. I think Henry the Eighth was the last Henry. I could be wrong, but i'm I'm pretty sure they stopped there. France is even worse. France just kept on going with the Louis. They just could not get enough of the name Louis, apparently, but England, for its part had this royal house, this family, passing down the crown of England from generation to generation at a period when it was just brutal. It was just a really, really violent time. And the rulers of England, the kings and queens of England, primarily the kings that really weren't queens to speak of Eleanor of Aquitaine does play a major part in the history of England and France for that matter Uh, she she definitely was a major player but other than her it's the men of the line and the men of the line are by and large violent conniving uh just ruthless rulers. And and when they're not, they are weak and feckless and uh, you just they, they don't have the respect of anybody. But even there, I mean, it, it's rare that you find a weak Plantagenet who was also gentle. You know, by and large, the weakness leads to just a different kind of cruelty a different kind of harshness, but those who were judged to be good kings of the Plantagenet line, I mean, they could be brutal and ruthless, dispensing justice as they saw it or as they framed it on their enemies, their rivals, anyone who was a traitor to their rule. They could be absolutely brutal. Lots of beheading, drawing and quartering, a little bit of strangulation and smothering and starving to death of people that were disfavored but they just they just didn't mess around back then and you look at this period stretching from from the early 13th century until the late 15th century Ending off with Richard the Third, beginning with Henry the Third, you have just a lot of blood and death and a lot of arbitrary rule, and a lot of scheming, and a lot of shuffling the deck and trying to pull out a favorable card, and you don't get the card you want, and so you either find a new deck or you reshuffle again. Is this your card? Is this your card? No. And after so many no's, you just brain the guy with a mace. That's kind of the story of these nearly three centuries of English monarchy. At the tail end of all this, you have the War of the Roses. You have a contest between rival claimants to the throne ultimately resulting in the marriage of Henry the seventh to Elizabeth of York so the daughter of Edward the fourth and Elizabeth Woodville Elizabeth of York and Henry the seventh found the house of Tudor so your Tudor monarchs or Tudor House of Tudor but By the time they do that, you're into the discovery of the New World, 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, which totally changed the mindset of Western Europe about their role in the world. It totally changed the balance of power between Christian Europe and Muslim North Africa, Muslim Middle East, Turkey, this concern that in order to trade with China and the Indies, Europeans would have to sail through waters infested by pirates. They would be subject to predation, slaving, having their ships sunk, their sailors taken captive, put into the service of the Turks, All of that changes right after the fall of the Plantagenet house or the changing of the guard, if you will, as the house of Plantagenet gives way to the house of Tudor. But also another thing you have going on right then, right as this period is coming to a close, is you have the Protestant Reformation. And some of the things that happen, like the death of Thomas Becket, some of the things that happen in England and with England having this power struggle with France and working out differences with Scotland, having arbitrary rule at home and dealing with contention on the part of Plantagenet kings and the Pope, Going on crusade, then seeing not only the dissolution of the knights Templar, which had been the cream of the crop as far as European warriors went at their height, then became basically a, a fattened calf. It was open season on Templar knights and their and and their treasure and their <laughs> and their wealth, their accumulated holdings and property. This really is the setup for England breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church. The Plantagenets really are the setup for the Protestant Reformation, certainly in England, Scotland, not so much Ireland, maybe to some extent Wales, but I don't I don't know. I don't hear a whole lot about Welsh Protestantism. That might be a a good thing to study. But one can appreciate, I think, reading the dizzying intrigues and -and so-and-so killed so-and-so and and then so-and-so arrested so-and-so. And then the nobles had to rise up against John and get him to sign Magna Carta. And then they have to come up against this king and they come up against that king because this king and that king are ruling like tyrants. And one can appreciate in seeing how the Plantagenet kings specifically ruled, one can appreciate why it is that the Magna Carta came to be. One can also appreciate why it is that Samuel Rutherford wrote Lex Rex, the law and the king in 1644. You know, a mere 150 to 200 years after the close of the Plantagenet dynasty. And, of course, that period, you have the Tudor monarchs, you have Henry VIII breaking with the Catholic Church, you have plenty of back and forth between staunch Roman Catholic nobility, and royalty, and nominal, some might even say mercenary, Protestant uh, in some cases, but other cases seemingly genuine, sincere, Protestant monarchs, nobility, but this back and forth and back and forth in England for hundreds of years with power-changing hands based on who has the high ground, who can field the larger army, who's more ruthless in disposing of their enemies, who can manipulate the law to say what they want it to say, to seize lands and titles, give to their favorites, scandals concerning the morality of some of their relationships with their favorites at times, concerns about very thinly disguised homosexuality on the part of some of the Plantagenet kings. I mean, you, you just have a lot of yuck. <laughs> There's just a lot of corruption, a lot of degeneracy, some greatness, some admirable, commendable virtue, but it doesn't mark the period as I see it, or at least not in Dan Jones' telling. The Plantagenet dynasty is brutal. Richard the Lionheart, arguably the most famous of the Plantagenet monarchs. He goes off on crusade, has all kinds of humbling ordeals on his way there, on his way back, has a little bit of an Odysseus... Uh, quality to him on his way back. He's just trying to get home to England. Gets taken captive, held ransom. His mother being Eleanor of Aquitaine, very shrewd player in European politics. At one point, she's Queen of France. She gets put away because supposedly she can't produce a male heir for the King of France. She ends up marrying the king of England, or the man who would be king of England, and produces quite a few. (laughs) She does all right by the end of it, as if to prove that, no, the issue wasn't her. But Richard the Lionheart, for his part, son of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, is only a hundred years removed from William the Conqueror. I mean, that's that's pretty, pretty remarkable when you size those things up, you put them together. The Norman Conquest was a century before. That's not a great deal of time. Richard I, son of Henry II, son of Geoffrey of Anjou, whose nickname was the Plantagenet, had to do, I believe, with a little sprig, a little flowery sprig that he used to wear in his hat. He was given that nickname. Geoffrey of Anjou, for his part, son of Henry I, who was himself the son of William I, the Conqueror. So Richard, for his part, is the great-great-grandson of William the Conqueror. But... John, for those of you familiar with the Robin Hood Disney movies, let's say, or Mennonites, if you will. Henceforth, all latrines in the kingdom will be referred to as John's. <laughs> well, there's a good reason for that. John was just the worst. Like he was just an awful amoral, uh paranoid, brutal guy, strangled his 14-year-old nephew, who was a captive, who was a prisoner, disposed of his body in secret. John seized what he pleased, disposed of who he could, and was just generally a, a tyrant. He was just awful. John is the reason why Magna Carta came to be. You have the nobility of England, banding together and saying, this is unacceptable. You have to abide by God's law. You can't just do whatever. You don't make morality and truth whatever you want it to be. You have to abide by a fixed standard. And we're going to make sure that you do. So he signs Magna Carta. And as anyone who has read on from that point to the present or for the next few hundred years anyway, knows that's not the end of it. You don't get Magna Carta and then all of a sudden the kings of England behave themselves, kings and queens of England behave themselves like little angels from that point forward. No, you you have Magna Carta and you have maybe a little bit better behavior, but you also have more brutality and you have more deceptive schemes, trying to maneuver in such a way as to crush any potential accountability before it has a chance to coalesce, gather together, muster its forces. Calling a traitor, whoever would bring accountability, raise questions about whether or not this is in keeping with the law of the land, which, what does that remind you of? What What are we hearing now? <laughs> more and more, anybody who questions the official policy on this, that, or the other thing, anyone who questioned the 2020 election, some Democrats want to call treasonous, traitorous, treacherous, seditious. Arrest them. Take them to the Tower of London. Take their wife and child to the Tower of London and don't feed them. And let's just see what happens, see how long it takes for them to crack. It's not a new idea. It's not a new concept. It's not a new problem. It's more absurd and more ridiculous in our day that Democrats would do such things, in large part because they don't even have as good of an argument for why they would be right to do such things compared with kings and queens who've assumed the office, but I'm reading Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex right now, and he talks about whether the king is from God only or whether the people also make a king. And he brings up some really, really good points. I think you have to answer the questions that he's asking. And you have to consider the answers that he's giving to the questions asked. Go and look at the Old Testament kings. You don't just see David refusing to kill Saul when he has a chance. He says that Saul is the Lord's anointed, which is important in part because David also is the Lord's anointed. But David has the power to remove Saul and he doesn't. And yet... What do we find, as Samuel Rutherford points out, we find that before someone who has been anointed like David actually takes the throne and is considered a king, in fact, not just in potential, not just a future king, before they actually become a king and are made a king, the people, the scriptures say, the people take them to such and such a place and make them king. And that's when it's official. And as Rutherford argues, the people are an instrument of God. God works through the people in some form or fashion. And just like we see in the story of Moses, God sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh saying, let my people go. You also have God... Hardening Pharaoh's heart. No, I will not let them go. And God uses that and He illustrates His power, His sovereignty. He uses that as an instructive molding opportunity, not just for Israel, but also for all of the nations to see His power. He makes an example of Pharaoh. He makes an example of Egypt. He delivers his people out. Well, if God can harden Pharaoh's heart, God can certainly harden the hearts of the people writ large. And if God can harden a heart, he can also soften a heart. It has to work both ways. It has to work in both directions. And if God can soften Pharaoh's heart, he can also soften a people's heart if it pleases him, if he wills. In a recent conversation I was having with some friends of mine in the writing club in Gladii Veritas, we were discussing how there are two types of authority. There's organic authority and there's institutional authority. Organic authority is from God. A man is born with certain gifts. He's born with certain abilities. He's born with certain traits and qualities, whether those Are a result of genetics, or personality, or temperament, or context, the family he's born into, the time and place he's born, the circumstances in which he comes of age, what instructs him as he grows older, etc., etc. There's an organic quality where this grows out of a seed that the good Lord plants and allows to be planted in a certain soil that the good Lord allows the seed to be planted in. So God gives organic authority. And then institutional authority also is something that a sovereign God who rules over creation arranges to be bestowed on someone to whom God has already given organic authority at the proper time. And that's an important feature, that's an important detail. David does not become king as soon as the prophet Samuel anoints him. For that matter, it's a curious business with regards to David, if he is to be instructive, because when Samuel first arrives at the house of Jesse, and Jesse is told to bring all of his sons together so that Samuel can inspect them, Jesse has every one of his sons line up with the exception of David. Isn't that a curious business? It's almost like the mirror image of Joseph and his brothers. There's some kind of an animosity between David and his brothers that you see when Jesse sends David to bring his brothers lunch when the army of Israel is encamped against the army of the Philistines. David brings lunch and you have Goliath standing between the two armies as the champion from Gath, the champion of the army of the Philistines, taunting Israel and mocking Israel and Saul and the God of Israel for days. And David brings them lunch And he starts asking questions. Well, is anybody going to fight this guy? (laughs) Go home, David, is basically what they tell him. Aren't you supposed to be watching the sheep? Get out of here. So maybe, just maybe, when Samuel comes visiting, Jesse knows that there's a kind of animus between David and his brothers and just figures, you know what, I'm going to do the opposite. I'll do the opposite thing to what Jacob did. I'll do the opposite thing. Instead of giving Joseph a coat of many colors, I'll just keep him out of the way. I'll send him off to keep the sheep, take care of the sheep, so that way he's not provoking the jealousy of his brothers. Who does he think he is? Or maybe he knows exactly who he is, and it's for that reason that he wants to keep him off to the side. It wouldn't be a shocker if David turned out to be the same kind of uh, nuisance to his brothers that he proves to be for Saul. You know, on the one hand, you've got Saul loving David, admiring him, appreciating him. When David steps forward offering to fight Goliath, Saul is, I think, relieved Because if David will fight, that means that Saul doesn't have to. Admiring, my dear boy, how about that? But then, as David wins, as God gives Goliath into David's hand, that admiration, that relief turns to bitterness and jealousy and envy. And so too, it could have been with David and his brothers, He has that organic quality, which God sees. God sees in his heart, and God chooses. But for the same reason that God would choose David to be anointed king of Israel, his brothers might reject him until it's established, until he is made king. Well, so also, Samuel Rutherford argues in 1644, in Lex Rex, He argues that a people have not only a right, but even a duty before God to resist an ungodly king who is violating the laws of God, who is violating the natural law, who is ordering his subjects to violate the laws of God. And when you think about just putting yourself in the shoes of A common person living during the course of this 270 years that the Plantagenets ruled and reigned. Imagine putting yourself in the shoes of a nobleman, a churchman. I mean, no one was safe. No one. Anyone could be brutally ended at any time, whether because they were just caught up in the middle of the power struggle of two guys who both want to be king or they both want these lands or they both want et cetera, et cetera, or you are somebody who has something and this guy wants it and he's going to make up any excuse to remove you, call you a traitor, call you treacherous, or if you are loyal, if you are loyal to the king and others are jealous or there's a rival claimant he might need to remove you because that's how he's going to weaken the guy who stands between him and the throne so it was just a it was just a mess long and short but out of this period you have parliament you have the house of lords you have this idea that the nobility of the country have a responsibility to hold the king accountable not only to serve the king unquestioningly, blindly, without regard for the God in heaven to whom we all will have to give an account someday. No, if I'm supposed to obey the king because the king is put in this position of authority by God, well then I have to obey God first. The obedience to God peace, is preeminent. My obedience to this king is subordinated to my obedience to God. Therefore, just like the apostles answer when they're commanded to stop preaching the gospel by the Sanhedrin, by the council of Pharisees, just like they respond, we must obey God rather than men. So also the nobles, if they fear God, have to serve the king faithfully, serve the kingdom faithfully, but obey God rather than men. Now, it isn't to say that all the nobility had the highest-minded ideals at all times. Certainly, to some extent, to a greater or lesser extent, there was a mercenary self-serving quality to their banding together. There was a component of self-preservation. Hey, this is getting dicey. And it's dangerous. But it doesn't have to be a cynical thing. When we look at the way this was argued for, the way it was reasoned out, it doesn't need to be a cynical thing on our part where we presume that they didn't really mean it. All these arguments for and against the king having this much authority or not that much authority or these people having a responsibility before God, they didn't really mean it. It was all just pageantry. We shouldn't assume that. I think to some extent, it's too easy to reach for the cynical dismissive because we live in a time of religious liberty and separation of church and state, which you can thank public education for to a tragic extent. By the way, buy my book if you haven't yet. And this is why we homeschool. You don't need to send your kids off to the state to be raised, that the state is their mother and father, the state is the God over all. Don't do that. Actually, the Plantagenet story should be instructive to why you would not want to do that. Pretty soon you have arbitrary rule leading to men and women being tortured and arrested and murdered, sent off to fight one another in totally unnecessary and unjust wars, civil wars included. Before you know it, there is no accountability. There is no fear of God. It is the book of Judges, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. It sounds fun at first, but in the end, it's death and dying and suffering and tyranny and oppression, and you will rue the day. For my part, I look at this, and I can appreciate better from reading Dan Jones' The Plantagenets, I could appreciate better how religious pilgrims, Puritans, might breathe a sigh of relief at the possibility of sailing across the Atlantic Ocean to the New World and founding colonies where they could worship God according to the dictates of their conscience, where they could rule and govern themselves, raise their families, work, develop property, own and possess property, according to the dictates of their conscience, according to God's word. I can appreciate how that would have just been an absolute answer to prayer after hundreds of years of arbitrary rule, power struggles, back and forth. And we're we're not even in at this point, when you're still in the Plantagenet period. We're not even into Henry VIII and the break from Rome and Catholics versus Protestants. We're not even there yet. But that in time would lead to what we now have in the way of religious liberty. Now, religious liberty, I think, has been abused, but you can appreciate where it was coming from when the colonists who founded the United States of America remembered all too well the violent persecution, the deprivation of rights for those who disagreed on certain matters of doctrine and practice back in the old world. Now, it's a funny thing, because all of this that I'm talking about can feel really fantastic. It can really feel mythical and otherworldly and like just a a, a totally different world, a, a totally different life, a totally different universe? Do we even inhabit the same universe? How far removed are we from these things? I mean, even the founding of the United States of America can seem like it was so, so long ago, but Really, truly, I mean, 170 years, 270 years, 400 years, 500 years, what is it, really? I mean, I can say the House of Plantagenet, and what does it mean to you? I I was asked here, oh, three months ago, four months ago, something like that, at a Christmas party, I guess that would be three months ago, right? We're in March. March 20th, March to February, to January, to December, when asked by Liz Messer, what are you reading here lately? What are you reading right now? And I said, well, I, I actually just started this book by Dan Jones called The Plantagenets, and I just recently finished a History of the Knights Templar by him, really enjoyed it. I thought it was well done. And she's like, oh, the Plantagenets. And we got to talking about fascination with kings and queens of England and royalty and the royal family and how that's just so foreign. Just a real brief conversation because there were kids milling about. And I think somebody asked her a question about where to put cookies or some tray of meats and cheeses and crackers and whatnot, and then one of my kids ran up and needed me to help them with something, but she asked me briefly, <laughs> and I don't know why this has rung in my ears for three months, except that I second-guessed myself after I answered the question, She and I don't even remember why she asked the question, except that it's just a it's a foreign word to us, even though we're somewhat vaguely familiar that it is a word and that it's a a term and that it was a a dynasty of English monarchs, monarchs of the British Isles. But she asked me, how do you spell Plantagenet? And I answered, and then as soon as I answered and we got interrupted and went our separate ways, and that was the end of the conversation – I'm like, did I spell that right? How do you spell Plantagenet? I just bought a book and I'm reading a book on the Plantagenets. But I should say I'm listening to a book on Plantagenets. And they don't necessarily spell all the words or any of the words really. But it's the title, so I should know, right? For the record, just so everybody knows, Plantagenet is spelled Plant-Age-Net. That's how you spell Plantagenet. Plant-Age-Net. Net. But we really should be more familiar with the Plantagenets. They're an important part of our history as Americans. And some folks will say that it is Anglo-centric to read the history of Europe and to study the history of dead white people. Why should we care so much? Why? Why don't we just study world history? in a general sense? Why don't we study the history of Turkmenistan, for instance, or India? Why why aren't we as interested in the history of China as we are of Europe? I mean, England's just this tiny little country, right? What does it matter? Well, think of it this way. Let's say you, oh listener, are in Colorado and you you were born here and l- let's say you've been here for generations your family came to Colorado from somewhere and let's say you're interested in your family cuz you're uh, that's what you know best you, you grew up in your family and so you know your parents i presume and you probably know your grandparents and you might even know your great grandparents They might even be still alive, depending on how young everyone was in your lineage, when they had children, how old you are. If they're especially long-lived, you might know your great-grandparents. You probably don't know your great-grandparents, but maybe you've heard stories. And if you've been here in the state of Colorado for quite some time, you probably know some history of the state, as opposed to somebody who just moved here a couple of years ago, and is trying to get up to speed. There's a lot about Colorado I don't know. And it's not that the history of Colorado is unimportant. It's just that it hasn't been as interesting or as relevant to me being from Montana. Even the state of Florida is more interesting in some sense because my mom's from Florida. How did we come from Florida? How did my mother end up being born in Florida? How did her parents get there? Oh, they came from Pennsylvania and Georgia? Well, that's interesting. I've got a lot of family that came from Pennsylvania. So then Pennsylvania becomes interesting on both sides. Mullets spent quite some time in Pennsylvania when they first moved here. McFarland's spent quite some time in Pennsylvania before my grandmother moved to Florida at a certain point. So Florida's interesting. And Pennsylvania's interesting. It's relevant. It's pertinent. So I might be interested in the state history. How did that affect my grandparents, my great-grandparents, great-great-great-grandparents even? And why did they choose to settle in Pennsylvania for a time when, when they came over? Why, you know Why was that a draw? What was in them and what was true about that state when they moved to it? that they didn't feel was true of other states? Or what did they not like about other states that they did like about Pennsylvania? Also, where did they come from before they came to Pennsylvania? And what does that mean? What does that say about who we are? And when we do that as a country writ large on the whole, there's no escaping that the British Isles, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales to some extent, although Wales always just kind of gets tucked into the corner, almost a footnote in the larger history of the British Isles. But for purposes of my family, and I think for purposes of outsized influence on the United States of America, where I'm from, where my family on both sides has been from for hundreds of years, I think to myself, Well, how long have we been here? Well, it can't be too all-fire long because... Columbus sailed the ocean blue only in 1492, so 500 years at most. Not that I know of any ancestors who have been here 500 years, but I do have some family on my mother's father's mother's side who was part of that uh, original Jamestown colony, survived the starving time, was contemporaneous to... John Smith, the famous John Smith, one ancestor who ended up in his book, talking about the starving time, surviving the, the starving time. So, four hundred years, plus. That's pretty. That's pretty good. Okay, where did they come from? Why, why did they come here from England? What was going on in England that maybe they didn't want their descendants, forever and ever, to live in that environment? No, let's say you go back even just 300 years. My mom's side, they've been here, I think, 50 to 100 years longer on both mother's and father's side. My matrilineal grandparents, as far back as I've traced anyway, they've been here 50 to 100 years longer than my father's side, but... What was going on in England that this was a better place to come to? They thought they would take their chances. Even risking that Atlantic voyage, risking Native Americans, risking a lot of uncertainty in the new world to start fresh, start new. Well, I know that the history of Scotland is very important to the McFarland's branch, the McFarland's that I come from were barons and chieftains and they came over after falling out of favor with King James the 1st and I believe 4th I think he was simultaneously King James the 1st and the 4th if memory serves but the family fell out of favor because they assisted the McGregor clan in a blood feud against the Colquhouns the Colquhouns were in a better state of affairs with the royal court. They really took a thrashing. Reportedly, they were on their way to attack the MacGregors when the MacGregors struck first, surprised them, killed a great many of their number, a great many of their men, and the king punished the MacGregors and the MacFarlands severely. So then, not too Long after that, the MacFarlands that I come from moved to Ulster County, Ireland, which is also very interesting. That should tell you something about how dangerous it had become to be a McFarland staying in the ancestral homeland of Scotland, staying in the area around Loch Lomond. So they find Ulster County a safer place wow, must have been pretty dicey. I suppose that's what happens when the king is very displeased with your house. So they moved to Ulster County and they're there for a few generations. Part of that Ulster plantation designed to curb the rebellious spirit of the Irish as it was seen, as it was thought, counteract the Roman Catholic Rebellion, as it was seen. And they're there for a time, and there are issues. And this is true in my wife's father's side as well. The Duffs, I'm able to trace back before her father's side came to America hundreds of years ago. One of her ancestors in the male line was basically the equivalent of the. Uh, head of the city council for Belfast. Belfast was established by that same king of Scotland with whom my family fell out of favor on my mother's, mother's side. But it's interesting, right? It's interesting that even for having served at a very high level, my wife's father's ancestor or his descendants, decided being sovereign of Belfast is not worth it. Let's take our chances in the new world. A certain John Duff was his name. 1730, 1741, 1742, 1747, 1753, he served as sovereign of Belfast, which is kind of like the chairman, director mayor, if you will. But then, not too terribly long after, I think it was decades, I'd have to look again, the Duffs come to America. And I think when you read the story of the Plantagenets, and you realize, here's 269 years of history, and out of this comes the Tudors, and the Tudors Break England, Ireland, Scotland away, or try over generations. Break them away from Rome. That's still the troubles in Ireland. A combination of racism against Irish, long-standing animosity about attempts to impose English rule, British rule. Also, Catholic-Protestant friction. But you have the Protestant Reformation come to the British Isles and it gets to be a mess. It gets to be a, a real big mess because there's a lot of questions of authority with regards to what does the king actually have a right to command and also what do the subjects have a responsibility to obey and also what does God's word say about church and state, and subjection to both or either? Should they be separate? Should they be conjoined? And it's relevant to us. It's especially relevant to us as Americans, even if we're from a totally different part of the world, to understand how the United States of America came to be in light of primarily English history. These were English colonies, 13 English colonies, British colonies. So then you have this idea of Britain. That's important. Well, how did it come to be Britain? And is it all the same if you call these British colonies or English colonies? Good question. What is the difference? England is a part of the British Isles. It is not the entirety, but it's the dominant partner. And why is that? How did that happen? Well, a great deal of the history of how that came to be that england is the dominant party in the british isles happened under the plantagenets edward longshanks is a plantagenet king william wallace fights for scottish rebellion during the reign of the plantagenets the macfarlands for that matter become an important clan in large part because they're instrumental in Scottish independence. And then the Acts of Union, which were very unpopular with the lion's share of Scots, make Scottish independence untenable. And so what happens to the Scots whose position in the realm was predicated on Scottish independence? Well, they come to America, a great many of them. Actually, a great many of them go to the Caribbean as well you can you can read colin woodward's republic of pirates for an intervening history the republic of pirates has almost everything to do with jacobites objecting to as they see it an illegitimate king sitting on the throne a stolen election if you will by the way as an aside, have you ever wondered to yourself, this is really important to the whole issue of church and state and the history of the etymology for what we call things and why we think of them along certain lines. Have you ever thought to yourself about how the same word that we use when we're talking about selecting, choosing, appointing a president of the United States or the governor of the state of Colorado or the mayor of the city of Greeley, or the city council of Evans, have you ever thought to yourself that the same word we use, election, is also the word that is at the center of the Calvinist-Arminian debate? Have you ever thought about that, and why is that? Now, I could be wrong, and this is something I want to research as far as the history of the term, and the word, and the concept, and whatnot, and I might be researching it right now, so I might have an answer for you soon. But for the Calvinist, which is to say, for the Reformed, for the staunchly Protestant, election has to do with God having chosen who his people would be from eternity past. Now, who God chooses is known to him in specificity, ultimately. We look to the end, and we believe that A great many of the men who throughout history have been identified for us as Christians are known by their fruits. By your fruits, you shall know them. What did they say? What did they write? What did they believe? What did they do? That gives us some idea of whether they were in fact Christians, whether they claimed to be, is somewhat a side issue. Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But it's who God chooses. God elects. Paul is very clear on this in Romans. Now, how precisely the mechanics function, I've said before and I'll say again until my mind is changed or I come to a better understanding or what have you. But there's no escaping the fact that God elects. Paul says as much. We have to discard the scriptures to disagree with that. God elects who will be saved. God chooses Well, this is the subject of Samuel Rutherford's book, in a sense, because that was the question of the right of kings, the divine right of kings, to rule, even arbitrarily, or so their staunchest supporters, most loyal subjects, contended violently, brutally, in many cases. Samuel Rutherford, for his part, writes in 1644, ah, not so fast, the king is still subject to to the law of God. And if he doesn't recognize that, and if he acts in violation, flagrant, persistent, premeditated, and unrepentant violation of the law of God, there has to be an instrument of God to hold him accountable. So who is that instrument? As so far, I understand Samuel Rutherford, the instrument is the people. And just like the people... Make a king, in the case of David, Samuel, per God's instruction, anoints David, and yet there is already a king on the throne. And so you don't have two kings. I'm Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. No, Saul is king until he's unmade king. And David is not king, in fact, until he is made a king by the assembly of Israel, who recognizes that he is the Lord's anointed. Well, so also, Samuel Rutherford argues, if you have a king who is a flagrant disobeyer of God's law, the natural law, then it is the rightful and necessary role of the people to unmake the king. The king is seizing lands, wildly throwing around accusations of treachery and treason for any disagreement whatsoever, any attempts, any gentler attempts to hold him accountable. He's trampling on the rights of Englishmen. He's violating Magna Carta, the great charter. He is breaking his oath of office. Then he should be unmade king for breach of faith. It's very little different from when a man and wife take marriage vows. What is it that Jesus said? Moses permitted divorce because of hardness of heart. Now, what is that hardness of heart? Well, it could be an unwillingness to forgive. could be a stubborn unwillingness to have mercy on a transgression. But I think the more intuitive reading of it is that it has to do with hardness of heart on the part of the transgressor. I am doing this thing I'm going to keep on doing this thing. You can't stop me, and I'm not sorry. What other recourse would a husband or wife have except, okay, you've broken faith. You have violated the marriage vows. The marriage is terminated. You terminated it, but we're going to recognize that you have terminated it as a material fact. So also with kings. If we say that such is permissible in the case of another divine institution, God-ordained, God-instituted marriage, then it reasons, we would say the same, with rulers. And yet we know that just as kings will use violence, if necessary, to hold on to legitimate power and to punish evildoers, a wicked king who has already thrown out the idea of being subject to the laws of God in his rule Will similarly transgress against the laws of God when there's an attempt made to hold him accountable, to either curb him or remove him, which is to say that he will use deadly force to hold on to power. And if he does, but the responsibility is established that he should be curbed or else removed from power, then even the use of arms is justified and even necessary. And this is why the founders of the United States of America did not see themselves as rebels. And this is why Sir Edmund Burke, the Honorable Edmund Burke, supported the American Revolution. Because it was predicated on Magna Carta, the rights of Englishmen, which themselves were predicated on the idea of natural law. Men have a right to to do that which they have a responsibility to do. They have a responsibility to provide for their families, to protect their families, to serve their families. If you impede that responsibility that they have to provide for their families, to protect their families, well, then they have a responsibility to band together, if necessary, and stop you from impeding them. As a projection, as a continuation of their responsibility to provide and protect for their family. So there's a lot here. Again, I'll say if you check out the audiobook, I gave it four stars, I might have given it five with a better narrator, truth be told. But if you check it out, just be prepared. Lots of Edwards, lots of Henry's, a few Richards it can be, it can be challenging to keep them straight. But this is very relevant to where we find ourselves. Very, very relevant. And it's important that we know where the ideas of the American War for Independence came from, their context, their inspiration, how they had been tested. They were not pure theory. They were principle. It was an experiment in some measure. But we need to understand the experiment. We need to appreciate it historically. A major way we can do that is by studying the history of the Protestant Reformation and also the history of the kings and queens and people of the British Isles. But that's all the time I've got. Check it out. You might want to get it in print. Just saying. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.